Hello, and welcome to Warhammer 40K's Grim History from the Beyond. I am Zekthar. And I'm Yuxin. We are the chroniclers of all that was, and all that will be in the 41st millennium. We've seen the rise and fall of many empires, and this week we will be looking into the mysterious Chaos Space Marine Legion, known as Alpha Legion. Yes, the insidious Alpha Legion, experts in subterfuge and covert operations, the Cloak and Dagger Legion of the original Founders, and now, Renegade Space Marines. But we will be going a wee bit dark this month because we are chronicling the hordes of chaos. Fear not! We will try to keep it as light as possible. Indeed, Yuxin. We will make treachery and murder as happy as possible. This month, we will be going over the Primarchs of the Legion who the Chaos Gods actually are, and some notable characters, of course. Of course, Sektar. But to our dear listeners, if you like our stuff, please subscribe, follow, like, and comment. And I suppose if you wish to help Bob, you can click the support podcast button on any of the descriptions on Spotify. And for those who listened to our first box, uh, what was it again? Oh, that would be the history of the Necrons. Right. Just to let you guys know, the audio does get better. <laughs> Quite right, Yuxin. And now we have support for Bob up and running. If you like what we do, don't hesitate to plug in on Spotify. We wish to keep this free and without ads. So if you find folks truly enjoy this, you can help. If you only donate to Bob on our Spotify channel for 99 cents a month, we can continue doing our stuff without those hated ads. Now, mind you, if you wish to do more, feel free. But this is all we ask, just 99 cents. Well, what's on the agenda today, Yuxin? Well, this week, Zektar, we're doing an old classic, Alpha Legion style. Huh. We will be discussing some notable characters. Spiffy, that's one of my favorites. Uh, you mind if I start this one? Not all, dear brother. The stage is yours. <laughs> Very well. Today, I think I shall start off with a Tulian score. Now, a Tulian score or better known as King Killer, served as a consul delegatus to the Alpha Legion. And what reliable sources the Imperium has been able to gather indicate that Score was at the head of the Alpha Legion's 78th chapter. He was frequently dispatched by his Primarch Alpharius to command compliance of newly discovered worlds in the name of the Imperium. Those worlds that refused invariably fell to disorder within weeks, and then a strike force of Alpha Legion, led by Score himself, delivered a coup de grace, bringing compliance with only a single shot fired, invariably through the temple of the world's broken ruler. After the outbreak of the Horus Heresy, he performed the same role, until the debacle at Epsilon Strenavir 9, where the desperate forces of the dozen shattered loyalist battle groups threw back his forces in terrible defeat. Pardon me, brother, but wasn't Stranivar 9 a crucial world for Horus' campaign against the Empire? Uh, yes, yes it was. Then why did he leave it to Nostardes to take such an important position? Was he really that well-respected? Well, to put it bluntly, no. Like you said, Stranivar 9 was important strategically due to its location at the nexus point of several stable warp routes linking the Koronoid Deeps to its neighboring sectors and even the Segmentum Solar. The world of Epsilon Stranivar 9 had become a beachhead of the ever-expanding Great Crusade as it ventured further into the Segmentum Obscurus. By the end of the Great Crusade in the early 31st millennium, Epsilon Stranivir 9 had become a fortress world, its barracks and mustering grounds harboring countless regiments of the Exterdus Imperialis, ready to join the Crusade. 
With the beginning of the Horus Heresy, Fortress Stranivar, as it was widely known, could again fulfill its intended purpose, a secure beachhead at the Imperial Frontier with the Coronoid Deeps, which had since been conquered by the traitor legions and now formed the heartlands of their secessionist empire. Fully aware of the fact that while the Loyalists held Stranivar, his rebellion was exposed to a swift counterattack by Loyalist forces. Horus made the conquest of this world one of his early priorities and tasked none other than the grim primarch of the Death Guard, Mortarion, with its capture. Ah, so it really was Morty's fault. <laughs> True, but Score was not blameless in this defeat. Uh, let me explain. While the traitors mustered their forces, Fortress Stranivar was garrisoned by a detachment of the Imperial Fists, the sons of the great Primarch Rogel Dorn, and his expertise in siegecraft was unparalleled, save perhaps for the dour warriors of the Fourth Legion, the Iron Warriors. As the first battles of the heresy unfolded, Stranivar became a safe haven for those Loyalist forces that managed to escape alive from the deadly trap of the Dropsite Massacre and other conflicts. Therefore, the Loyalist Legionist Astartes' presence, which had only numbered a few hundred thus far, swelled to considerable strength, reinforced by survivors of the three shattered legions, the Iron Hands, the Raven Guard, and the Salamanders. Escaping the clutches of the enemy, even an errant strike force of the Blood Angels, whose legion had been deployed far to the galactic south, found its way to Stranivar. Horrified by the news of treason brought by the survivors of Estevan V, the Imperial Fists and their allies swore solemn oaths to make the traitors pay and fight to their last breath. While the Loyalists fought shoulder to shoulder as true brothers, the War Master's armies showed a remarkable lack of unity. First of all, Mortarion focused his attention solely on his own legion, prosecuting the war according to the tenets of the 14th Legion, as they had proven highly efficient in the past. At no time did he seek the counsel or the involvement of his allies, who he let devise their own strategies and fight when and where they chose. These allies included the 78th chapter of the Alpha Legion, led by Score, and the 114th Grand Battalion of the Iron Warriors, whose knowledge of siege warfare could indeed have turned the fight in the traitor's favor, if they had not been squandered so foolishly. Mortarion's lack of interest quickly became a cause of friction, as both the Death Guard and the Alpha Legion frequently let the 114th Grand Battalion to attack the heavily fortified Loyalist positions unsupported. Inspired by the ruthless tactics employed by his legion at the First Battle of Paramore, Atulian's score used the sacrifice of the 114th Grand Battalion to his own profit, conducting surgical strikes on high-value targets and claiming all the glory for himself, whilst the Iron Warriors bled and died unacknowledged and unnoticed. At the Siege of Varna, when the Loyalists defiantly vanquished their opponents, the Iron Warriors were abandoned by both the Death Guard and the Alpha Legion, the Grand Battalion left behind to act as a sacrificial rearguard whilst their allies escaped. The 114th Grand Battalion lost nearly 4,000 Astartes in that fight, leaving its highest-ranking officer with barely 2,000 Space Marines under his command. Embittered by this turn of events, Narc Dregor, now in charge of the 114th, swore that his fallen brothers would be avenged sowing a seed of discord that would soon bear terrible fruit. In the wake of this defeat, Score's once spotless record was marred, and he quickly fell from grace of both the War Master and his Primarch, exiled to the distant battlefields of the northern rim of the galaxy and forgotten. There, desperate for a return to glory, he seized upon the Mazoa campaign as a chance for his return to the upper echelons of the traitor's cause. Determined to sacrifice every last warrior under his command to feed his ambition, Atulian once more trod the path of war. 
However, the destruction of Mazoa would be no easy task. Every trader commander knew that if victory was to be achieved at all, it would undoubtedly be bought at a high cost. Few commanders present at Port Ma were ready to let their forces be badly mauled so early in the campaign to overthrow the Imperium. Yet the War Master's will had to be done. And so a quiet war of influence, lies, and veiled truths soon gripped Port Ma to designate one amongst their number to pick up this poison chalice. This political bickering often ended in bloodshed as Astartes are first and foremost crafted for war and armor combat, until Atulian's score showed up. Lacking both the presence of their respective primarchs and that of an influential patron at Port Ma, and still humbled by their defeat at Stranivar, it soon fell to the 78th chapter of the Alpha Legion and the ill-fated 114th Grand Battalion of the Iron Warriors under Nerik Dregur to prosecute the Mazoan campaign. Pardon my interruption again, brother, but this is starting to ring a bell. Really? Um, what sounds familiar to you? I I can't place my finger on it. Gah! I know this story. It seems to escape me like sand running through my fingers. Well, don't worry, brother. I'm sure it'll come to you uh, as I continue. <clears throat> Anyways, benefiting from the rank of his consul delegatus of the 20th Legion, Score was designated as overall commander of the besieging traitor forces and used his newly acquired status to appropriate the lion's share of the available resources at Port Ma to bolster and re-equip his own companies, leaving the Iron Warriors of the 114th little chance to recover from their own losses at Stranivar. With Perturbo and the bulk of the 4th Legion far distant, the remaining traitor officers did not feel compelled to aid Dragur, who they largely perceived as a failure, and thus the Iron Warriors had no choice than to make what repairs they could and embark on this new mission. Tulian's score had not given up his ambitions, and his tenacity was rewarded with one of the largest autonomous commands assigned to a simple officer. The Mazon Task Force, compromising of 9,000 Space Marines, three full Tagamate heralding from the Forge World of Impandex, and more than 20,000 human troops. His fleet numbered a dozen capital ships, amongst which two were the fearsome Mangonel-class bombardment cruisers. Apart from the Primarchs themselves, none had commanded more men or more warships, but what truly spurred on score was the prospect of victory. For if he won, he knew that he would benefit greatly from Horus's favor. Assured by his Devonite priest of chaos that the passage of the fleet would be swift and sure, the invaders made for Mazoa. During the orbital battle, they marked the opening of the Third Siege of Mazoa. The Loyalist defenders received help from an unexpected quarter, the Ebon Drake, a strike cruiser of the Salamander's Legion. Daring the guns of the enemy, the Ebon Drake ran the gauntlet in order to allow his complement of the Starry Warriors to join the battle on the ground. Wait, I got it. By George, I got it. <laughs> yes? I knew this sounded familiar. I chronicled this battle when we did notable characters of the Salamanders. This is one of the greater stories of Cassian Vaughn, also known as Cassian Dracos, the Twice Dead, and the Fallen Master. First commander of the 18th Legion before the coming of Vulcan. And now the venerable dreadnought known as the Dracos Revenant. <laughs> well done, Euxton. I was wondering when you would remember. Perhaps you would like to give the end of this story? Not the whole thing, mind you. We don't have time for that today. I will actually be doing a bonus box of that. Perhaps you could give us the cliff notes on how it ended? Certainly. Under the guidance of their illustrious leader, Cassian Vaughn, the Dracos Revenant, this company of warriors, which had taken to calling themselves the Disciples of the Flames, 
would prove instrumental in the defense of Mozilla's forge veins and in repelling the invaders. In particular, Cassian Vaughn's actions would lead to Nerex Dragor and the survivors of the 114th Grand Battalion of the Iron Warriors to renounce their oaths to the traitor horse and join the Loyalist camp, which ended with Imperial victory. But I am unclear on one part. Uh, what would that be? What happened to Attilian's score? Well, his fate, like many of Alpha Legion commanders, is unknown. Uh, figures. He is Alpha Legion, after all. <laughs> Indeed. Well, before we get to your character, what do you think of this general? Well, my opinion is sort of skewed between the fact that he was supposed to be a really good general, yet the way that he did things, at least when it came to the Mazoa War, wasn't very intelligent, per se, on how to go about things. Um, I think a lot of that has to do with the fact that I think that his ambition got the better of him. Because one of the things that, you know, for example, the, the primarchs of his thing is they're able to think tactically and be able right. to maneuver other people around. It seems like he really didn't do that. He basically just sent him out there without any sort of direction or right. any way of invisibly directing him, so to speak. Well, like I said, I think a lot of that has to do with the fact that he, weighs of, he, he was blinded by his own ambitions. I mean, when he was uh, with uh, Epsilon 9, he ended up waging a war that showed anyways that he was capable of taking out all these different commanders. The problem was is that it wasn't enough anyways to win the war, which is what really needed to take place. I mean, it's all well and good if you take out these pieces anyways. It's like a chessboard. It's like, oh, it's nice anyways if you take out the queen. But if you lose the game, who cares? Right. <laughs> This is one of those guys, though, by the way, anyways, I figure he's probably dead. I know that we don't really know, but with, like I said before, with his ambition, I'm betting anyways that he 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 died. Yeah. Either he died on the battlefield or another Alpha Legion person actually took him out. Because they're saying Which, this guy you know, they have been known to do. <laughs> yes, yes, they have. In fact, there is one case where one of them did turn to chaos and then literally they were hunted down by another group <laughs> well this is all well and good but who did you do research on well one of them i did research on is known as exodus now exodus was the name given to a famed alpha legion assassin during the great crusade and the horse heresy none can say whether exodus is a single individual or one of several supremely skilled assassins operating at the behest of the upper echelons of the alpha legion Certainly, the name or coded identifier Exodus had appeared in multiple box chains and order logs in many different war zones, sometimes simultaneously. This in itself was likely to be accidental, given the Alpha Legion's mastery of deceptions in all its forms. Whatever the truth, the legionary known as Exodus ranked amongst the most skilled killers outside of the assassin clades of the Fisio Assassinorum during the Great Crusade. His skill at arms was born of the convergence of the will, physiology, and conditioning of Space Marine with the fieldcraft and panoply of arms and war gear of an assassin. Prime example of such war gear would be his sniper rifle named the Instrument. 
It is a weapon of unknown design and provenance and apparently combines advanced bolter weaponry with gravatic acceleration technology. So adept was Exodus that his marksmanship was said to rival even that of the Vindicar assassin. And a keen ability to insinuate himself into position and deliver the killing shot at the pivotal moment in a campaign. With just a single round, he was able to achieve what an entire war may not have been able to. In fact, some histories claim that as many as a dozen worlds were brought into imperial compliance with only a single shot having been fired by Exodus, who could achieve with one round what the expenditure of billions of bolts, charges, and shells might never bring about. Well, brother, what do you think about this assassin? Um, I want his gun. <laughs> we could find his gun. That sounds really cool. That sounds well, like... To Go be ahead. fair, probably what happened since it was made for Space Marine is it would blow your arm. Off? <laughs> Maybe. Uh, oh, okay. Or, or um, shatter it significantly. Why? With the blowback? Uh, you've seen me fire a bolter before. I think I could do it. <laughs> but yeah, no, I... I, I kind of really want his gun. It sounds, it sounds like they use the technology of a bolter along with the, uh, um, oh, what is it? Uh, what's rail the gun? gun? The, the, the like the rail guns, yeah, that the Tau use. Kind of something you use a gravitational field, anyways, that actually slings it out even faster, which sounds awesome. I mean, that sounds like one of the coolest weapons that you could probably find. Not only that, but it's also called the instrument. Yeah. I mean, it's like the instrument of death. I mean, it's like perfect. That's like a perfect name for it. Not only that, but I think anyways, that this guy is fairly terrifying just on the concept that to me anyways, I'm, I'm actually more surprised that there aren't more Alpha Legion assassins. And they're kind of designed for it, right? Um, eh. I mean, they are space brains, so they are big. Right. <laughs> Well, okay, and well, normally, anyways, when you think of like the assassins that are like space marines, you think of a uh, Raven Guard, right? Um, they're the ones that are really known for being, you know, like hit and run tactics and and being sneaky like that. But I mean, everything that we've but heard about Alpha generally like a sniper, which is um, more what Exodus was. Not to say that he wasn't awesome up close either, right? I mean, he is a space marine. I I, I hate to ask, but uh, do you know what happened to him? Why would you even bother asking that? This is Alpha Legion. Well, yeah. Or them. Or them. Yeah. Uh, I I don't know, man. I just I, I just always kind of wonder anyways when somebody just kind of drops off the end of history, what ended up happening to him. Yeah. So the fact that he weighs that this guy just randomly disappeared. I mean, not only that, but we've kind of briefly talked about how long Space Marines live. And the real answer is that nobody really knows. Yeah, because they just tend to, you know, die in combat before they get to old age or stuffed in a dreadnought. Yeah. Um, The one time that I can really think of anyway. Well, other than. okay, so Dante's the oldest space Marine left alive right now. Right. That isn't in a dreadnought. Yes, that isn't in a dreadnought. And didn't he end up fighting with Sanguinius? I don't think so. No, okay. I, no, I, the only more... the only one that's known to have been actually around the time when the Primarchs were still around, really, uh -huh. was, was uh, Space Wolf. Um, uh, yeah, was the guy in the Dreadnought. Uh, 
Bjorn, thank you. Yeah, Bjorn. Okay, well, but Dante's still pretty old. I mean, he... Yeah, he's like over a thousand years old or something like that. Yeah. And then you got, you know, the chapter master of the Space Wolves, Logan Grimnar. And he's been around since the first War of Armageddon. So it doesn't seem like they actually really die from old age. I mean, with these two guys, you can definitely see that they've aged, but not necessarily that they can die from it. So... And then the other thing that I really remember was is that there was like a, a couple of space marines that got stuck in like a time warp and it like aged their body 3000 years and they were still up and running. So okay. Yeah, it was it was kind of a weird bizarre thing and uh, but so I'm I'm guessing at this point perhaps Exodus is dead just simply because he was around during the, you know, 31st millennium. Well, the reason why I think the best indicator of him not still being around or maybe there is one still around. It's just something's happened between then and now is the fact that there hasn't been any like high profile random deaths. Well, other than those Vindicar assassins that showed up in the um, food box anyways, the high Lords of Terra. (laughs) That was well, that was pretty assassinated. They were down a couple. It's like, well, actually, we did more research, and a couple of those ass, uh, assassins, their heads didn't show up. Oh, really? <laughs> no. Oh. <laughs> but you can see that happening. It's like, why? It's like, well, they didn't have a head left. <laughs> yeah, they didn't have a head left. <sighs> I was like, oh, we know why, don't we? <laughs> it's called a headshot from the instrument. Uh, well, that is actually also something, anyways, that I find interesting. Anyways, what happened to his gun? Maybe, maybe we can find it. <laughs> In theory, it had technically two settings to it: one being a burst fire, and the other one being a single fire. Right. I highly doubt that he would ever use it for a burst fire. Personally, well, why not? Because like it's he's trying a sniper rifle. Yeah, but I mean, like you, I mean. You can use there. There are uh, sniper rifles out there, anyways, that have you know burst shots. Well, I know, but the whole point of using a sniper rifle is generally to get positioned to hit one target, maybe multiple, but yeah, not and you're to off. It in burst fire because you're right. you're expecting that one hit to actually do the job, not need to try to hit the same target three times. True, but then there's also anyway sniper rifles that aren't really technically sniper rifles; they're like a mid range sniper rifle and they're designed anyways to be more like close quarter right close quarter by the way is relative yeah (laughs) anyways but this weapon sounds like it's something that's meant to be long range well it's called the instrument i mean (laughs) you can use like for instance anyways a violin and you can play it like a fiddle (laughs) so well i think we covered what we could about this mysterious assassin who are we going to talk about next well, I think we should talk about Armelius Dynat, who was known as the Griefbringer and the Instar Nine. He was a Harrow Master of the Alpha Legion during the Great Crusade and Horus Heresy era in the 30th and early 31st millennia. Dynat was a fearsome strike commander since his name came to prominence during the invasion of Paramar V. Known to possess strategic genius, his style of warfare was as intricate as it was unorthodox. Using fast-moving, heavily armored vehicles and close air support, he would split enemy formations apart before crushing them without mercy. Armelius Dynat was an expert duelist and warrior in his own right as well. 
wielding a thunder hammer and power sword in unison and carrying uncommon war gear such as venom spheres and phosphix bombs. He was an opponent to be reckoned with. Sweet mother of mercy. He used a thunder hammer and power sword? Why haven't I heard of him? He sounds interesting. Well, like the rest of his legion, little can be said for certain about the origins or character of the Alpha Legion commander known as Armillus Dynet, whose name itself may be an artificial construction used as a mimetic factors from several different dead Terran dialects, meaning approximately the fallen prince or false prophet who destroys with power. Pictorial references from this officer is only available thanks to the recordings of a remembrancer attached with the Ultramarines, who were present at the Pulsine War Council, where Dinette is recorded to have infamously sparred with First Captain Marius Gage over the conduct of the war after the Ultramarines were repulsed during the Battle of Asarna Bay. Dinette was known to be a formal strategist with a penchant for unorthodox and highly intricate attack plans, often designed to pull apart and maim enemy fortifications before a killing blow was delivered. Armelius was also a master of integrated fast armor and close air support tactics. Armelius Dinant is thought to have been a theater commander during the notorious Testra campaign and the mastermind behind the Onesi genocide and the harrowing of Callista Mundus. His name quickly became infamous during the Horus Heresy as a feared strike commander, beginning with the invasion of Paramar. And that is all I could find on the man. Really? You seem to be long-winded on score. Why the difference? Honestly, that's all I could find on the guy. He seems very interesting. About a ghost in the system, so to speak. Huh. Well, you mentioned he was a hero master and was part of the invasion of Paramar. Perhaps you could give us details on that? Um, sure. In the terms of honorifics and titles, the Alpha Legion seemed to have used a shifting set of terminology to convey authority and role. At times, the Alpha Legion appears to have deliberately copied the systems used by other legions, like the Sons of Horus and the Blood Angels. Although whether this was done to incorporate a proven pattern of organization as part of a particular strategy, or as some form of mockery remains unknown. Aside from these patterns, close scrutiny of the records also reveals several distinctive additional divisions of command not shown by other Space Marine legions. One such unique title known to have been used by the Alpha Legion was that of Harrowmaster, who was the leading commander given overall control of all Alpha Legion forces in a given war zone. Although their nominal rank might vary, it was the task of the Harrowmaster to keep track of encompassing the shifting events of the conflict in minute detail and shape the actions of the Legion's forces accordingly, creating and aborting battle plans and stratagems with bewildering speed. The position of the Harrow Master was known to be held as a supreme accolade by the Alpha Legion, and their infamous skill at battlefield control was highly regarded, even as the Legion itself was often mistrusted by the commanders and strategos of other Space Marine Legions. It is noteworthy that the Harrow Masters were among the few of the Legion, save its equerries, whose personal names are left to the open record. Although, whether these have any basis in reality, or merely guises worn by a single warrior, or perhaps a series of individuals to hold the same rank, remains unknown. I am Alpharius. <sighs> yeah, we know. That is a lie. <sighs> now, the invasion of Paramore is as intricate as most invasions, so I will not go into too much detail on such things. Perhaps a bonus box? Mm. 
Perhaps. But until then, let me just give you the nuts and bolts of the conflict. The First Battle of Paramore, also known as the Invasion of Paramore V, was a major campaign fought during the opening days of the Horus Heresy in 006.M31. It saw the invasion of the vitally strategic imperial world of Paramore V and the eventual conquest of the Paramore system by the traitor marines of the Alpha Legion and the forces of the Warmaster Horus. Participating in an operation led by the Primarch of the Alpha Legions, Alpharius, in the immediate aftermath of the Estevan battles, and intended to capture the Mechanicum Prevender worlds of Paramore V. The traitor Alpha Legion and allied Legio Forens, God Engines, anticipated a quick capture of the Paramore Nexus, the world's primary starport. Upon pressing towards their final objective, however, they were surprised to encounter not just an entire grand battalion of Iron Warriors still staunchly loyal to Terra, but a large force of the loyalist Legio Griffonicus. The first battle of Paramore proved a victory for the traitors, but a more costly one than they had anticipated. But it was just the first in a series of battles fought during and after the Horus Heresy for control of the strategically vital system of the Segmentum Solar. Typical of the Alpha Legion's tactics, the first conflict of Paramore V was a cold, calculated campaign, both intricate in its complexity and ruthless in its execution. In the end, the traitors found victory and continued on their crusade against the Imperium. Now, brother, I don't know if we have much to talk about about this general, but do you have any thoughts before we continue on to your next notable character? I, I find it interesting how somehow they could be surprised at them. They didn't somehow find out that there was a large force of hide-ins at the location. <laughs> they, they I, I mean, I can understand Space Marines since they jump around a lot, but I mean... Titans, those take a while to transport. <laughs> Not only that, but they're they're quite large. <laughs> yes, they are. <laughs> they're very large. <laughs> it's like, how did you miss it? It's standing right there. It's the size of a large building. <laughs> so if I recall right, maybe I'm I'm wrong about this, by the way. But aren't Titans like the size of? I mean, they're they're like the size of Terran Forty Two's Empire State Building, right? Um, it depends on the type. Okay, so the biggest ones, though, they're they're about that size, right? The biggest ones are like, oh, I don't know, they're massive. Yeah, probably because the the two main ones they think of is the warhounds, which are of course small when it comes to titans, small. <laughs> yeah. And then uh, the warlord titans, which are much bigger. Right. Um, and so, yeah, I believe well, Warlord Titan would be around the height of a uh, Empire State Building, I believe. It's significantly wider, too, though, right? Well, yeah. I mean, th those things, if I recall right, and, and for those of you, anyways, listening on YouTube, um, there'll be a picture of one of these things, but they're, they're like a, it's almost like a building with legs, right? And, and arms. Guns and Arms yeah, with weapons and it's like somebody stuck a church on top of some legs and then gave it arms and then just like stacked it with weapons, <laughs> like missiles and guns and <laughs> yeah. And, and don't tell them this, but the stature is more like that of an orc than an actual human. If you look at it, yeah, they're kind of hunchy. <laughs> 
the head's sort of about the same level as the shoulders. Right. <laughs> but that has to do with par uh, the, the, the Paramore campaign. What do you think of this actual general? Um, very unique individual. The fact that, of course, he's able to wield both a hammer and a sword efficiently at the same time. Yeah, I just thought that was ridiculous. I was like, wow. I don't even know what that um, looked like. It doesn't make a whole lot of sense to me. But Yeah, I would assume that in general, if you're doing it that way, you would, oddly enough, probably use the sword to block. Oh, that's the hammer Because the hammer, unless you're holding the hammer almost near its head, it's that's more gainly than the sword. I was thinking of it more along the other way around. I figured, like you were saying, anyways, he held it like the hammer up towards like the head so he could use the staff part to block. And if he got in close, he's got, you know, a giant anvil anyways in his hand he could smash somebody with. And with the sword anyways, that's what he's using the thrust. I guess it depends on what the size of the thunder hammer is too. I'm thinking of like a one-handed hammer sort of hammer. Oh, okay. In comparison to like, for example, I think the hammer you're thinking of is like a huge war hammer hammer, which re generally looks like it's something that you would hold with two hands. Right, but he's a space marine. So I could see him wielding one of those with one hand. I don't know. It, to me, and I also think anyways that it also depends anyways on um, who he's fighting. So I mean, like for instance, yeah. like you were saying anyways, if he's fighting a... Uh, let's say if he's fighting a Drakkar anyways, then yeah, maybe he's using the hammer more as a, as the swinging weapon that way, because the sword's faster and it's easier. It, it would be easier to block with, but if he's fighting something, you know, like heavy and armor, like a, um, a star days, maybe he actually uses the sword more because it's got a little bit more power when you punch through it with it. Well, except for it's a thunder hammer. <laughs> like I said, thunder hammer, anyway. thunder hammer generally has a bit more damage behind it than a power sword. Just, Right. Well, I'm, okay. Yeah. But if, if the other person's got armor on, anyways, that sword's faster so it can get through, you know, holes in the armor and whatnot. And it's a power sword. So I don't know. The whole thing, anyways, seems a little ridiculous to me. But we're kind of getting uh, forward, like, what comes up next. Oh, oh no. What comes next? Who are we talking Ooh. about next? Focron. Ah, yes. A truly sinister foe the Focron were. Uh, oh, so there was more than one of them? There was one, and there were many. I am Alpharius, and that is a lie. Uh, are you okay, Euxin? Fine. Why? Uh, um, no reason. Just thinking maybe we, we've delved a little bit too deep in Half Legion. Now, Fokron, was oh. the designation given to a headhunter of the Elf Legion during the Horus Heresy? Years before the heresy itself, Fokron and a few other Alpha Legionnaires were put into stasis under Terra to act as a sleeper cell in case they were to be needed. In the opening salvos of the Solar War, Alpha Legion human operative Mismadra activated Fokron and his Bell brothers. Now that Fokron was active, he committed sabotage and subterfuge until he was supposedly killed by Archimedes during an Imperial Fist ambush oh so we actually hang on have a second Houston. so we actually have an accounting of an alpha legion commander dying well oh no after the horus heresy a chaos lord of yeah. the alpha legion named Fokron, of course was held responsible for the death of 
entire worlds through callous acts of sabotage, terrorism, and inciting war undertaken by his vast network of chaos cultists and human operatives. He was pursued for around a century by an Ordo Herticus inquisitor. In the end, the Imperium discovered his hideout, the derelict space station and space hulk, Hydra's Eye. Of course, it's named Hydra. Yeah. Hail Hydra! <sighs> However, despite taking the station and cornering Fokron, the Inquisitor was shocked to find that Fokron was an identity and alias used by many Alpha Legion members. There had never been a true Fokron. It was merely a name to organize cultists and agents across the Imperium. Moreover, now that the identity was compromised, Alpha Legion had decided to discard the identity anyway. Worse still for the Inquisitor, a member of the Alpha Legion had made his face identical to his own, indicating that he was the new identity to replace Fokron. Yuxin, you gave me too much hope. I thought we might have actually found out about somebody dying. But no, no. Pop back up again. <sighs> I don't know, man. This is getting old. <laughs> so is Fokron just anyways a designation of Headhunter? Um, I'm not sure. There could be many different ways that it's taken. It could be taken that there was a Fokron at one point, and then the Alpha Legion just decided to borrow that name after the Horus Heresy. It could be, yeah, there wasn't technically any Fokron ever. It was just a designation used that kept being passed around from one person to another to another. Right. Or to multiple people at one time, because, you know. They like to do that, too. It sounds like, at least, there was a fellow by the name of Fokron that was killed by Archimus. But maybe. This this goes back to the whole stupid I am Alpharius thing. Like, who knows? You know, this could have been just Fokron 1 <laughs> as opposed to, you know, Fokron 4. <laughs> it just been... And the way that he kind of described it, it sounds like, anyways, that it was like... Either one thing or another, either A, this guy that was killed by Archimus was, his name was Fokron, and he had a squad, so he was like a squad leader. Oh. Or two, anyways, it was they, it was indeed a squad leader named Fokron, but then the rest of his squad was named Fokron. Or they took, a, took his name or designation and used it later. After he, he was killed. Yeah. Or, of course, there's, there's the idea that maybe he didn't technically die to Archimus, but he died somewhere else along the way. And it was just somebody else saying that they were Fokron. Yeah. God love Alpha Legion. <laughs> well, at least you'll know that one of the next people dies in the next one. Oh, really? We actually do have an account of somebody dying? Who? Yes. What space, what, what space Marine actually died? Well, it wasn't actually a space Marine. Oh, what was it? Well, I think now's the time to discuss Jalen. Oh, those guys. Uh, yet again, Hail Hydra! Indeed, Zekthar. Now, Jalen was the designation of a new kind of Alpha Legion operatives tentatively named Hydra Operative, believed to have been active on the soil of Talarn for several years. Most distinctively, the Hydra Operatives are no standard human, but bioengineered clones and established as twins or triplets operating within the same cell. 
Each Jalen had an electio on his face, allowing him to present the green scales and blue feathers of the Hydra, as well as Mechanicum rink insignia. They identified themselves to allies with the small alpha symbol tattoo on their left palm. The electives also extended over their arms and fingers and could show various images there. Jalen also had psionic abilities. Uh, so he was a Sparatoi? Yes. Sparatoi, which translated from the ancient Terra term meaning the sown men, would go ahead of the legion and infiltrate the population acting as spies, agitators, and saboteurs. Operating individually or as part of a cell network, these agents and operatives often had little knowledge of each other, or in many cases of who their true masters were, but were uniformly highly trained psychoconditioned for ruthless and fanatical loyalty, and were often subjected to surgical, cybernetic, or biochemical augmentation to further their abilities. And it sounds like, like fun. Electives. Kind of like the electives, you know, being the put in them and stuff. The electives? Uh, wait, wait, wait. What? 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 Kind of the electives that the Jalen's had? That That is a natural thing. You understand that, right? Oh, yeah, yeah. I mean, they're all, yeah. Oh, oh. Ah. Now I get it. Okay, never mind. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Carry on. I'm given a reference example here. Ah, yes, yes, I understand that. Hail Hydra. They would encourage treachery, spread disinformation, and corrosive mimetic patterns, and find or take over underground rebel or terrorist groups. Their role primarily was to promote dissent and cause widespread panic and infrastructural damage, and so seek to critically weaken an enemy before the Legion itself emerged in battle. When the Alpha Legion finally showed its hand, these elite agents and their web of prepper agents would provide a wave of sabotage and destructive attacks, further destabilizing the enemy, often at the cost of their own lives. It is apparent that prior to the Horus Heresy, these mortal agent networks were expanded into the Imperium itself and its armed forces, becoming a cancerous presence that was only revealed as the great interstellar civil war erupted. Now, the 20th Legion recruited many of these non-Astartes specialists in every theater and campaign they entered, commonly members of other Imperial Armed Forces, though almost any human could be approached by the Legion for his knowledge or skills. These operatives often remained in their original position, ready to respond to Alpha Legion commands. Compromised operatives were not discarded if it could be avoided. And Alpha Legionnaires would go to great lengths to retain them or to hide their existence. Lengths that would include the fatal silencing of other Imperials. Alpha Legion operatives were tattooed with a small Hydra symbol similar to the 20th Legion's badge. The most noble work of these Sparatoi Jalen was when the three of them infiltrated the World Talern several months prior to the famous Battle of Talern. And after having founded influential local supporters, tried to peacefully realign the world's allegiance in favor of the War Master. These efforts were, however, thwarted by the unforeseeable invasion of the Iron Warriors Legion. At the head of an entire cell of Alpha Legion operatives, Jalen had established a network of spies and agents both amongst the Loyalists and the Iron Warriors, enabling them to venture into the Loyalist shelters and even the decks of the Iron Blood. This extensive network includes specialized kill teams, armored troops, and even an elite assassin squad of legions of Stardates. 
Jalen's activities had, however, drawn the attention of an imperial agent of the Fisius Asinorum in the form of Aeo, an unbound infocyte of the Vanus Clade, which successfully put an end to his operations. And what operations would that be? Well, Jalen and his two clone brothers, Jalen and Jalen, had infiltrated the Iron Warriors and Imperial Guard during the Battle of Talarn. Together with them, he ran an informant network. He tried to tell Argonus, the emissary of Horus, what the Iron Warriors were up to, but in reality, he was trying to mislead and distract Argonus from the Alpha Legion's secret intentions. Unfortunately for brother number one, Argonus found out about the ruse and killed him. But before he was killed, Argonus had him interrogated, aka tortured, and Jalen revealed that both the 4th and 20th Legion were searching for the Black Oculus. Um, pardon me, brother, but what the devil is a Black Oculus? The Black Oculus was a portal that would allow Iron Warriors to make a pact with demons and gain power. In the end, they never recovered it. Ah, but, but what happened to Jalen Brothers number 2 and 3? Well, the second Jalen was shot by an Iron Warrior's security detail. The last brother died in a battle between Iron Warriors and Imperial Guard before a sandstorm erased all trace of him. Of course, with anything in relation to Alpha Legion, no trace might as well mean not dead. <sighs> right. Oh, these guys sound interesting. I think we really have no more information about these guys. But do you have any last thoughts on the Jalen brothers? Nope. Uh, very well. Then I think we shall conclude our Vox discussing Ingo Peck. Oh no, not this guy again. <laughs> Indeed. Ingo Peck was the first captain of the Alpha Legion during the Great Crusade, and Horus Heresy eras. Like many Astartes within his legion, he was surgically modified to resemble his Primarchs, Alpharius, and Omega. When the Cabal Perpetual named John Grammaticus sought to enlist the Alpha Legion into the service of the Cabal's agenda to destroy chaos, he met with Peck, as well as Thias Herzog, and the true Primarchs, all in the guise of Alpharius. Despite his rank as essentially the Legion's second-in-command, as was the Alpha Legion's custom, Peck later served under the command of Harrowmaster Kel Salonius during the Battle of Pluto. But this is not the end of his story. I know, he was part of the whole buffoonery of <laughs> John Grammaticus. <laughs> Indeed, Euxin. But while I was digging up information on my bonus box for dear old John, I found more information about Ingo, which gives a little clarity to the bizarre story of Grammaticus. Uh, fine, how about you? Well, I think the whole story of Grammaticus is too obtuse. You have piqued my interest. Very well, carry on, sir. Well, at some point, Peck was dispatched by an unknown party to aid the Emperor during the Siege of Terra. His hypno-trigger phrase... Wait, when the Nine Realms is a hypno-trigger phrase? I've never heard of it. Well, neither had I. And the more I dug, the more I found hypothesis and bold statements, neither of which I could confirm. The best I could come up with was the Primarchs of Alpha Legion had their chapter encoded with call signs that would dictate their actual movements without thought or agreement. Really? Yes. Now, don't get me wrong, this is just an idea from the research I did, but it makes some sense. 
This would be why Alpha Legion could act and react so quickly to battle plans so intricate that they needed troops to move with perfect timing. That's interesting. Very well, if you would carry on. Yes, well, Ingo's hypno-trigger phrase, Xenophon, was activated, as opposed to Sagittari, which meant loyalty to Horus, Paramias meant mutual annihilation, or Orpheus, which meant ignore both sides and focus on battling chaos. However, he soon fell under control of the witch Actia, who used her psychic powers to activate Orpheus and made him her slave. Now going by Alpharius, duh, Actia and Peck were able to join Alonius Parson, John Grammaticus, and a group in infiltrating the Imperial Palace. At a hidden Alpha Legion arms cache in the depths of the Imperial Dungeon, Peck was able to activate a side-dampening device he found to explain his plight to John Grammaticus, pleading for help. John agreed to help Peck, and the first captain saved the Perpetual from an attack by Alpha Legion's second captain, Matthias Herzog, who had been sent under the trigger Sagittarius. Later, John was able to neutralize Peck by attaching a motion-sensitive mind to him while he dealt with Actia. However, even after he came to an agreement with Actia, John knew Peck was far too dangerous to be left free after his trigger had been activated. John pledged to one day return and free Peck as he and the rest of the group left to journey to the Golden Throne. However, Peck was left standing there motionless long, long after Grammaticus departed. Well, what happened to him? Is he still there to this very day? I, I thought you might ask that question, and the answer is no. I personally took a trip to the depths of the Imperial Dungeons and scoured the entire complex and found nothing. Perhaps John kept his word and returned for the Astartes, or he found a way to escape. One of these is a fact, and one is a lie. I am Alpharius. <laughs> well, before we go, you got anything else to say about these interesting characters? I wonder if you took into account they may have died of starvation. Uh, Ingo? Yeah. Well, okay, if that was the case, okay, so that, if that was the case, bear with me, that was the case anyways, he would eventually just like crumple to the ground, right? And then the motion mine anyways would blow up. So I would have found some sort of anyways, you know, crater or something like that. I didn't find anything like that. Not only well, that, but... He's immobilized. Didn't say it, he was... He's immobilized because of this motion mine. He had to right. stay frozen. Yeah, so I mean, like eventually, anyways, I mean, if, if he would just if he starved, he would have just died and he would have fallen over, and then the mine would have activated because he moved. That's what I'm saying. So it would have left a crater somewhere, and there should have been some sort of bits of armor or something. I didn't find anything like that. Not only that, but isn't it almost impossible for a space marine to starve? I don't know. They do. don't generally. <laughs> Well, no, okay, cast your mind back anyways when we <laughs> talked about becoming a space marine. Was it one of the gene seeds that they get attached with or one of those organs? Doesn't that keep them from actually starving? No, I don't think so. Well, regardless, he's not there. <laughs> so who knows what happened to him? Perhaps John actually did show up and actually saved him. I don't know. Or just... somebody else may have. <laughs> yeah. Ooh. There's this giant space brand that's just standing in the hall. Although I will say anyways, so we were talking about Jalen and who knows if the last guy actually died there. I can guarantee anyways, he's dead now though. Why? Because I mean, that, that took 10,000, <laughs> it took place 10,000 years ago. Right. 
<laughs> and and he wasn't a space marine. He was human. So I'm I'm pretty sure he's dead. <laughs> so hey, you actually gave us a little bit of light at the end of the tunnel. You actually talked about a character that we can actually dictate that all of them died. Oh, oh I just thought of something, Zektar. <laughs> what? No, no, don't take this from me. <laughs> we found something. Uh, Ramber, bioengineering, and augmentation. Yeah, yeah. Well, that normally... Yeah, that can't that can expand somebody's life, but not for 10,000 years. I would think. It wouldn't be technically 10,000 years, would it? Well, we're what, in the 42nd millennium, and this took place at the beginning of the 31st? So, yeah. <laughs> 10,000 years. But now, who knows how many that they made in between time either. Yeah, that's true. I mean, okay, so the Jalen program could still be alive, but these three yeah. guys aren't. <laughs> that's what I'm saying. We don't know how many there are out there. How many brothers are out there? We don't. True. Know. I mean, there could be Jalen 7 and 700. <laughs> we just yeah. don't know. So we do know for a fact, though, that these three Jalens died. That's Our the dead. important part here. Yes. So out of all the people we talked about, we can confirm at least three deaths. <laughs> and unfortunately, that's all. <laughs> well, unless one of them turned into a demon and then it isn't dead. Oh, jeez. Well, the other thing you were saying, anyways, the, the bioengineering aspect of it and the Mechanicum part of it. I mean, Call's still alive, and, and he knew the Emperor. Who? Call. He's the uh, Mechanicus Call. He, hmm. he, he, remember when I did the um, short Vox on Trezine uh, and the Battle of Cadia? He's, he's the okay. guy that he joined up with anyways at the Battle of Cadia. So, and he's the one also that helped um, Rabute Gilman come up with the, uh, uh, were they the Primaris? No. Okay. The, uh, the, the is that is yeah, that actually right? I actually got it right. <laughs> yeah, the primary space marines. So yeah, and he's been around for a good long time. But he, in his defense, I mean, technically he is still somewhat human, but he's really more a machine than anything else at this point. Yeah, you know how the mechanicum feel. Yeah. They don't even feel that bioengineering's worth anything. They're just solid up. Yeah, switch things out. <laughs> Yeah. with machinery yeah but, but unfortunately folks that is all the time we have for today tune in next week as we do our Q&A along with our final thoughts on the Alpha Legion quite right Zektar and for those listening if you liked our Vox please follow subscribe like and comment yes and if you have any questions feel free to leave them in the comments or send them to our website at www.asharaka.com Yes, that's www.ashraka.com. Indeed. And as always, <clears throat> this is Ekthar. And Yuxin. Signing off.